You're on the Plants Grow Here podcast. I'm Daniel Fuller. Come along with me as we enter a hidden world of deep horticultural, ecological and landscape gardening knowledge with featured experts, industry professionals and enthusiasts. Trees and other plants are an incredibly important natural ecological resource that provide homes for a range of animals. In this episode, we're lucky enough to have on Dr. John Martin, aka Wingtags, who manages Hollows' Homes, which is a Royal Botanic Garden Sydney project which is transitioning to Wildlife Assist, in conjunction with the Taronga Conservation Society, which you may know better as the Taronga Zoo, as well as a range of other partners across the country. Currently, Hollows' Homes works with community and land managers to assess the availability of tree hollows in urban and agricultural areas. G'day John, welcome to the show. G'day Daniel, great to be chatting. Yeah, no wackers. So can you start by telling us a little bit about Hollows' Homes and this transition into wildlife assist? Yeah, well, across Australia... We have over 300 native vertebrates, so that's all the, the mammals and birds and, and reptiles, etc., that, that need tree hollows as habitat for them to be breeding. Some of them use them for shelter as well, but a lot of those species actually use them seasonally just to breed. And then beyond those vertebrates, there's all the non-vertebrates, which, of course, Bees are the, are the obvious one that a lot of people will think of, uh, so all the insects and, and spiders and, and things that also use tree hollows as habitat. So tree hollows are, are, are really important across the landscape and one of the things that it may not be blatantly obvious but uh, most people will appreciate, of course, that generally you're going to see tree hollows in larger, older trees, uh, and that's because they take time to form. There are a couple of different processes where they form, but in a lot of urban areas, uh, we don't see a lot of these big old trees, and that means that there's less likely to be those habitats and therefore less likely to be those species in our urban areas. In agricultural areas, as I think a lot of us would be familiar, there's generally a lot more trees and generally some bigger, older trees, but that depends on the type of agriculture. And um, some agricultural landscapes, of course, have, have removed a lot of trees for different cropping practices and, and stocking practices. So this is an issue uh, across a huge part of Australia where we've altered the landscape, and particularly removing trees. It's also a bit of an issue in some of our national parks as well, and, and that can be in relation to fire having you know, burnt a large proportion of areas and actually killed old, old, old trees and the time it takes for, for new hollows and new trees to form. So, of course, dead trees can provide hollows and they are really valuable, but they're often not retained, particularly in urban areas, because of the risk of trees collapsing on cars and people and houses and these sorts of things. So there's always a balance with respect to this sort of stuff. And one of the things that we'll touch on throughout our chat is nest boxes. And, and there's a lot of people who, uh, well, a range of programs that are using nest boxes to try and provide the supplementary habitat for our native species to replace those missing tree hollows. And so the Hollows as Homes project, which is, is going to be rebranded as Wildlife Assist, is uh, a citizen science project where you and I, everyone listening, can contribute to our understanding of tree hollows in the landscape and in particular the wildlife that use them. So you can report 
tree hollows and nest boxes and the wildlife that you see using those habitat so we can actually learn more about them and one of the so we can do that as a really small scale you can do it in your backyard or your local park if, if that's what you're doing there's a tree hollow there or if you chose to put up a nest box but we're also really keen to be working with regional groups and that could be councils or land care and, and these different groups that are uh, actively putting out boxes targeting different wildlife and trying to learn about uh, how we can do that best to maximise the provision of habitat for our native species. Fantastic. And you mentioned that the tree hollows are an incredibly important sort of source of homes, but are there other places in trees that are also good for habitat for animals? Absolutely. Uh, one of the groups of, of, of mammals that use tree hollows are microbats, and you might be familiar that these can be really tiny, as small as four grams and, you know, like half the size of your thumb with this little, you know, 15, 10 centimetre wingspan. And in a range of trees, they'll actually even just shelter under the bark of the tree or even in the folds of branches. So particularly fig trees are, are a really good example where you can see odd shapes in the growth of the tree and they sort of form these little uh, almost more like a little pocket rather than as a hollow and so uh, I've certainly seen microbats sheltering in, in a range of different habitats from even like a, a crack that's formed from tree growing or, or from lightning strike or something like this so things that aren't actually what we would consider a formal hollow and so a range of different species are going to be taking advantage of those opportunities as they present themselves. And I suppose as well within natural environments, the the trees, the plants, other plants, you know, fungus, animals, these are all evolving together within an ecosystem over vast periods of time. They absolutely are, yes. It's something that's probably very difficult for a lot of us to comprehend those interactions and, and the, the diversity of species that sort of form an ecosystem and and how those species are interacting. But uh yeah, so it's it's a tough one. One of the, the, the fungi comment there is a really interesting one. So in Australia, we don't have any primary hollow makers, uh, so things like a, a woodpecker. So large parts, the majority of the rest of the world has woodpeckers, and mm. they actually create hollows in trees physically. The key process for hollow formation in Australia that we predominantly see is actually fungi. And, the, and so that's actually the tree being attacked by the, the fungus and so it's then decaying on something like the, the branch collar and the branch collapses and you get this bit of fungal decay in the actual trunk of the tree. What you'll often see is something like a cockatoo come and pull out that decayed wood and but that, that fungal attack and, and that fungal decay of that tree might have been going on for 10 years or you know a few years and so it's, it's not a quick process. So there are a range of other processes like termites and fire and, and even things like lightning that can cause uh, create hollows, but none of these things are an overnight process. They take time. And you mentioned the branch collar there as being a great spot for tree hollows to be formed. Can you explain what that means, the branch collar? Absolutely. So everyone put your right arm out in the air, have a look at your shoulder, <laughs> and you can sort of see a little bit of a bulge around your shoulder because you've got a bit more bone and muscle there. When you look at a tree branch where it connects to the actual tree trunk, you'll often see a little bulge as well, and that's the branch collar. So it provides a bit of structural integrity 
when arborists are removing a branch, they'll they'll cut to the the branch collar on the outside rather than cutting to the the flat surface of the tree trunk. And so you'll often see there's sort of a small few centimeters, five ten centimeters um, in a big example of of a collar that's retained if a branch is removed from a tree. And I'll just jump to a, a, a type of tree hollow that is relatively new. It's been around for probably about 20 years, but has been receiving a lot of attention over the last, say, five to 10 years. And these are chainsaw hollows or cut-in hollows. And so just thinking about that example, again, if you threw your arm out in the air and, and you're looking at it there as, as a branch uh, analogue, if you cut the arm off at the uh, at the elbow and then you've got this sort of section of wood there, it's no, it's no longer a, a load-bearing section of wood. So there's no risk of, of that failing because of the weight on that bit of wood. But if you then cut into that bit of wood with a chainsaw to create a more naturalistic tree hollow rather than a box that's external, you can actually create a hollow that's got thicker wood around it. So in theory, it should have better thermal properties. It's not going to get as hot. It's not going to get as cold. Uh, and you can actually carve that in and just and you know you can make your own decision on okay I want it to be this big and this small much like you would with a box depending on how big the branch is and so they're they're a really interesting sort of evolution of the nest box of course they can only be used in certain circumstances we don't want to be going cutting branches off trees left right and center and they need to be done in in a safe way and and it's a very skilled uh, action to be uh, plunging a chainsaw into pieces of wood and carving out those hollows so it's not something that everyone should be doing the other key thing is we don't necessarily have great ecological data to say that this is the method that's appropriate for all situations and that's one of the reasons why citizen science is such a powerful methodology for us to learn more about what works for different animals and and so it's it's certainly something i'd encourage people to be reporting where they're, they're trialing these different methods and, and, you know, we collaboratively learn to advise future actions so that we're, you know, doing the best we can to help our native species. Mm. And can you give us some examples of how different animals and sort of different organisms prefer certain species? Yeah, so that's an, an interesting one. So the idea of different tree species, we, we don't actually have a hell of a lot of data about that. I guess a key point would be that we certainly see that the, the gum trees are the predominant uh, hollow forming trees in the Australian landscape. Of course, they're hugely diverse with the eucalypts, the carimbias and, and gophers in there. So then the, the challenge is really about where those hollows are are they the right size? You know, do they provide the actual habitat that the different species are after? Um, so that's that's really one of the key challenges, particularly if you think about altered landscapes like agricultural and urban landscapes where you've got less trees around and you're going to have, therefore, less hollows and less hollows of different sizes and, and diversity. So that that's really quite challenging. Um, I think a good analogue of that is is also just thinking about different species. So if you think about something quite small, like a rainbow lorikeet, it's not tiny, but it's not huge, you know, it's ultimately about the size of your fist and it, it generally uses a hollow that's quite 
elongate, so you could put your arm into it, you know, down to the elbow, whereas something that's much larger, like brush-tailed possum, which is, you know, sort of the size of a medium-sized cat, you know, household cat, they're using a range of different hollows that are that are much larger, more, you know, the size of a small box. Um, and, of course, things like a possum, they're sheltering in the hollow throughout the day, all day, every day, because they're nocturnal. So whilst they do use them for breeding, they're actually mainly using them, you know, 365 days a year for shelter. So that's that's quite valuable habitat for them. And of course, is one of the reasons why they've adapted in urban areas to jump in people's empty roof cavities because mm. they provide a giant free hollow. Yeah. So I guess maybe they're not quite as picky as what you might think a lot of the time, unless you've got like micro bats who maybe... Well, I guess even microbats aren't just going to go for figs only. They're going to go for any fold. It might just be that that fig tends to have that sort of habitat that it likes. Yeah, absolutely. So th- that's one of the really interesting things that we, we'd like to learn more about is the diversity of hollows. And, and we actually, the more we, we receive information and the more we go out and, and collect information, we do see that there are our species are using a diversity of, of habitats. They're pretty flexible. An important point on that is also how much there's a choice. <laughs> so in some habitats, there may not be too many choices, so you make do. We certainly know that particularly in, in urban areas, there's been some research monitoring tree hollows and lots of different species are inspecting that habitat. And then you'll also see sometimes competition. So you know, a glass might have chosen to start nesting in a, in a certain hollow and then they get kicked out by the sulfur-crested cockatoos, which are bigger and stronger and sometimes throw their weight around. Uh, equally, they might have been kicked out by a brush-tailed possum. So, you know, there's it can be tough out there, but I would also just say, you know, putting out boxes everywhere isn't necessarily the solution into those situations. Uh, so those species that I've mentioned, they're all actually quite common species. Having a lot more of of galahs and sulfur-crested cockatoos and brush-tailed possums isn't ecologically very valuable. What we really need is to be thinking about the species we're targeting and, and trying to support those rarer species in a habitat and particularly where they occur, the threatened species. They're the ones that are, are most vulnerable to this lack of habitat. So in maintenance gardening, the usual advice is to remove all of the dead wood from a tree. Would you mind speaking on that for a little bit? Terrible idea. Uh, look, deadwood is certainly an issue where there are risks to people and property, those sorts of things. Deadwood does provide habitat, including when it's on the ground. So with the, the new project Wildlife Assist, one of the, the, the category we talk about is shelter. So it's not just hollows and nest boxes. One of the things that I've seen people doing for a range of species is creating hides and, and little patches of shelter for things like bilbies to be hiding in of course with things like bush regeneration it's quite common that when you're removing some of the weeds you actually pile them up and that provides a hide for some of the smaller birds to be seeking shelter in and and other species to get it away from some of the larger species so one of the challenges we have and it it depends on the situation is that in in a best case scenario we're trying to replicate the natural world of course we can't just take the national park and put it into everyone's backyard and into every local park. That's not going to be appropriate for every situation. And, and so therefore, deadwood, you know, if it's a risk, 
yep, I appreciate that, that it gets managed. One of the things with the deadwood is it's often going to be an indicator of where a hollow is forming. Depends on the size of that of that deadwood. But as you can imagine, something like a, a spotted partilote, which is a nine gram bird the size of your thumb that nests in a tree hollow, is is going to need a very small hollow. So you might only have a, a one or two inch piece of dead wood that's that's actually decaying and is decaying into the the collar that is um, not necessarily on the trunk, but where the, the, maybe it's died halfway along the branch and you've still got some live wood and it might be decaying back into that live wood. Once that disappears, you've got a little hollow there. And so sometimes when we get the chainsaw out and clean everything up and have perfect smooth edges, we actually remove the potential for some of those habitats to naturally form through time that it naturally takes. So that's the challenge. These things aren't quick. So it's all about getting the balance right. We had John Parker on, who's the director of the Arboricultural Association in the UK, and he was sort of saying we need to be thinking in tree time rather than human time. Mm, I love it. Yeah. And so it's a, it's a really interesting one. You'll, you'll see in a range of different, whether it's government or, or various other educational material, that tree hollows can take even a couple of hundred years to grow. The reality is we actually don't have a great data about a lot of that. Um, we know that those trees can be several hundred years old, and but how long has that hollow been in that tree? How long did it take to form? Wow. Yeah, it, it may have taken years. It may have taken decades to form. And, and yes, it may stand and be used by wildlife for even a century or longer, you know, if that tree is, is able to be standing and, and living or dead for that matter. So, yeah, I, I think that's a, a perfect frame of, of mind to be thinking about some of these things, particularly when it comes to, to hollows. And, and look, I think it's actually a relevant point to touch on with respect to things like nest boxes. And the point here is I've certainly seen a lot of people put up nest boxes and, and think job's done, you know, that's installed. But when you go and look at these nest boxes, even five years later, a lot of them functional at all they they no longer have a roof or a side (laughs) so you know if we're talking about tree time and we want to say well we want this nest box to last even 20 years or if we want to go really serious 50 or 100 years you know those are time scales that are sort of heading towards tree time scales and so when we when we aren't achieving those outcomes uh, if we're putting up a box and it's lasting only a couple of years, then then maybe that's great for a very short time, but we need to obviously be having an active program where we're maintaining and fixing and, and replacing if we want to provide those habitats at tree time scales. And this is actually one of the key points that we think there's real value in people getting involved in the citizen science aspect of, of monitoring because it lets you know that it's whether or not it's working. So if a species is using it, and also in that same breath is, is are the species you, you want to be using it, using the habitat that you've provided? And, and so that's an important component. And then, of course, you, if you're doing monitoring, and that might be something you only do once or twice a year, you're able to go, all right, I can see it needs a little repair. I'm going to go fix that or it needs replacing and I'm going to replace it because I know it's being used by the species that I, I wanted to be using it. So, yeah, it's tree time sounds like a philosophy we should all be thinking about when it comes to conservation, how our contributions, how are they going to last? 
Yeah, and I, I love how you've also balanced that out with sometimes trees aren't safe or maybe you might even have an ornamental tree there that's really important to you. And so you sort of sacrifice a habitat in that tree to get rid of the dead wood because some of that fungus might sort of travel back into the tree and cause damage there. Yes, absolutely. Look, this this uh, if we're talking about particularly urban areas, you know, by definition, they are designed for humans. And so <laughs> that's probably the first thing you want to factor in. And then you go, all right, well, where can we get some winds in different patches within this landscape? And that can be the local park. It can be your backyard. It can be your street tree. But ultimately, of course, when we look at these landscapes, they're predominantly designed for humans and therefore they need to be safe and enjoyable. And, and you know, that's one of the reasons why we encourage people, you know, with respect to something like citizen science is to actually be engaging with their local environment, their local biodiversity. So. I don't know how many people listening are just absolute tree lovers. You know, you walk down a street, you see a great tree, you take a moment, appreciate it. It's it's um, it's something that'd be nice if we all actually could do that a little bit more. And and you know, you don't need to know the species or, or appreciate how old it necessarily is. It sometimes it's just hey, it's nice and cool under this shade, and it's a hot day. <laughs> so it's nice and cool in the shade under this tree, you know, and it's a hot day, like. Uh, I certainly can appreciate that and don't need to know anything more than the fact that I'm standing under a tree. Look, and, and so I'll just segue for a second. There's another project that I'm involved in, which is called the Urban Field Naturalist. And it's a project where we actually ask you to share those little stories, like, you know, you walk down your street and you enjoyed the shade underneath the, the gum tree and you have to look up and the Chernobyl cuckoo is getting mobbed by magpies and currawongs and noisy miners. This actually happened to me the other day. And so <laughs> it's, you know, the idea is you, you write a little 200-word story. You can send in a photo or a little video or, you know, if you're so inclined and, and you want to, you can send in a drawing or, you know, a, a sketch, whatever your, your art form is. And the idea there is about connection to nature. And it's not that you need to know that they were noisy miners or common miners, whatever, you know, the, the difference isn't the important bit. The, the important bit is that you actually enjoyed a moment and experienced a moment where you connected to nature and, and shared it. And, and I, I say to a lot of people, a really good example, that one's obviously pretty, just a lot of us do that all day, every day. But you, you, the last time you were in, had a moment in nature where you actually subsequently told some friends about it you might have been having a coffee with a mate and you're like you won't believe what happened the other day <laughs> you know anyway so i encourage everyone to go and, and have a look at the urban field naturalist website or social media and, and share some stories but sorry to digress no that's great so the urban field naturalist is definitely a resource that i would be open to using and i'm going to leave a link in the show notes for our listeners to sort of seek that one out and join it i'd like to share an experience that i had the other day so I'm at my parents' property at the moment in Chermside. So in Chermside in Brisbane, we have some beautiful sort of scrubland that you can walk through. And the other day when I was walking through, I saw a tree and it was it was very interesting the way that half of it, when you split it down, they still had all the bark up it. So it was a it was some kind of um box box myrtle of some kind. Mm-hmm. And it yeah, it was almost you could draw a straight line straight down the middle and it looked like Two-Face from the Batman series. So half of it was all alive. It had leaves and stuff coming off. It had bark going up and the other side was completely dead and it was just like a mirror image of, yeah, just a very interesting thing that I saw. I like it. It's really cool. And 
I also, I would encourage more stories about plants. I think a lot of people get fixated on the animals and, you know, what you've described there is, is really unique. But so is like just walking down my street and seeing a whole heap of, you know, 10 different types of hibiscus with all different flower colours and, yeah. you know, they, they can be such little things that you appreciate. And, yeah, that, that one sounds really quite interesting yeah. and quite beautiful. Yeah, and I bet he probably had quite a lot of habitat in that one. Well, you'll have to go back and do an assessment. <laughs> Let us know. <laughs> I'm not qualified. I can look from the outside. <laughs> well, yeah, look, and, and the thing with the that urban field naturalist is we actually sort of encourage people to – it can be opportunistic. You know, you were just there, you were walking around, it caught you, but mm. you can actively go, all right, I'm, I'm going to the park, I'm going to, you know, read my book, uh, but I'm going to actually – just sit down for a minute and I'm going to just watch and listen. And, yeah, it might be that you're walking and you do notice that there are a lot of trees and that there's some shrubs underneath in flower. You know, it can be as simple as that. But a lot of the time I think a lot of us, we don't pay attention. It's just the background and we're focused mm-hmm. on what we're doing. And uh, so, yeah, the idea is to make us, I guess, be a bit more aware of what's around us and that goes back to you know obviously things like tree hollows and the wildlife that are using them and, and the different trees that actually do provide those habitats uh, I've, I've certainly learned a lot over the last 10 years with respect to tree hollows I knew a bit about it through studies and, and reading and whatnot but the more I just even keep my eyes open and I'm walking down the street and I'm looking for things like, okay, I can see there's sulfur crested cockatoos around. I know they nest in tree hollows. At the moment I'm hearing the chicks begging for food and being fed by their parents, which means they've nested successfully in a tree hollow, arguably not too far away. You know, that could be a few kilometres. But as I walk around the street, I'm, I'm just looking and I very rarely in the urban suburbs that I live in see tree hollows they are exceptionally rare when you actually start looking closer and there's this really baffling scenario because in our urban areas and so i'm in sydney we have sulfur crested cockatoos rainbow lorikeets uh, in really large numbers we also see little corellas long-billed corellas other parts of the, of the city you'll see galahs other parts you're getting king parrots crimson rosellas eastern rosellas red rump parrots, all of these species nest in tree hollows and, and that's just a selection of parrots and you've got a bunch of other different species and, and it's like it sort of doesn't make sense that some of the most abundant species in urban areas record reliant on tree hollows when they're actually quite scarce in the landscape and, and the concerning thing is that we know with a lot of the parrots they can be quite long-lived. So with some of the research I, I've done on sulfur-crested cockatoos, we um so I've got another project called Big City Birds and, and it asks people to report sightings of, of soft crested cockatoos and crellas and brush turkeys and white ibis and, and their behaviours and where they're nesting and if they're feeding chicks and a range of different things. The wing tags, as, as you mentioned earlier, that's we've got individually marked birds so we can learn about, you know, what Daniel does from day to day and what John does from day to day. And and so when we look at, at a flock of, say, 80 sulfur-crested cockatoos, we might see that only eight pairs, so only 16 birds, are actually breeding out of that flock. Wow. Now, 
sometimes we see that a third of those birds are juveniles. So soft-crested cockatoos aren't sexually mature until they're seven years old. So there's, you know, there's a time lag there. In captivity, we know these birds can live, you know, to be as old as humans. Uh, in the wild, we actually don't know how old they live in, in the wild. So uh, if they're living for 50 or 60 years in the wild, you know, are these breeding birds that old or and are there all these sort of 30-year-old cockatoos that are still waiting to get a hollow and, you know, geez, when are the parents going to move out? So, you know... Yeah, and, uh, you know, so a, a, a good friend of mine, Dr. Adrian Davis, who did some research on this, he published a paper talking about the housing crisis for hollow nesting species and, and the competition. So, you know, we obviously talk a lot about the, the housing crisis for um, young Australians and, and housing affordability and all this sort of stuff. But if it's going to take 200 years for a tree to grow and, and then if you're lucky it forms a hollow because not every tree forms a hollow, you know, that's a hell of a housing crisis. But these species are common. So hence it's, it's confusing and it's the less common species that are even of a greater concern because they're the ones that we're not seeing in the Sydney region or, or other regions or we're only seeing very sparsely. So, yeah, there's, there's a lot to learn in this space. But to link it back to where I started, I'd encourage you to just next time you're walking in the park or down your street, just keep an eye out for the big trees and, and the tree hollows and just try and see how many you see because they're rarer than you probably anticipate. Mm. Totally. And I guess we've talked about trees a lot as habitat, but they're also can provide a food source for animals as well. Yes, absolutely. Look, I mentioned with the cockatoos, we do some research on them. We've seen with the sulfur crested cockatoos just in the Sydney region, them foraging on over a hundred different, different plant species. And that ranges from eating like fig fruit or a range of different fruits to eating seeds, flowers, leaves. You know, they're digging in the ground and eating the roots of grass. They actually see them eat bindies and all sorts of little things that are, are just growing on the ground. So, you know, it's not that they're just limited to the big seeds and, and things like this. So, and, and a lot of those foods aren't native. So they can be ornamental plants that have been planted in the landscape and, and are, you know, seasonally flowering, even to the point of eating jacaranda flowers. And if you've ever picked some jacaranda flowers and given them a little squeeze, you get a little millimeter of of white sap that comes out the base i wouldn't have thought that would be particularly good to eat but anyway (laughs) they eat it (laughs) yeah yeah i mean trees of course are so important for so many reasons and and even to that that fact of climate control so in our cities we see that they we have the heat island effect or the concrete or the bitumen you know the asphalt heats up and retains the heat so we we actually are hotter than we would if we're in a bushland environment where the plants are absorbing that heat and dispersing it so you know the the suburbs that have more trees are cooler of course those trees are providing habitat not just in hollows but also on so many species will be just seeking shelter and building a, a stick nest for a lot of bird species the leaf litter, I mentioned my, my good friends, the, the brush turkeys, of course, they're raking up all the leaf litter and the sticks to build their nest mounds to lay their eggs. And of course, the food that they're providing. So yeah, the, the flowers, the fruit, the leaves, everything's, uh, you know, a tree is a buffet, uh, particularly at the right time of year. One of my favorite observations, and hopefully everyone listening uh, has appreciated this or, or will go out and appreciate it, is just to go and look at 
Port Jackson figs or Moreton Bay figs. In particular, those two species are the ones that I see this most common. And you'll see, you know, a flock of, might only be five or ten, but welcome swallows flying over the top of the fig tree, just circling, hovering, hovering, diving and diving in. And they're predominantly eating the fig wasps, which, of course, they have an amazing a life cycle where the um, female climbs into the the young fig and pollen, uh, lays eggs. She dies in the fig. Those eggs hatch in the fig. You've got the female and male wasps inside the fig, and there's you know several hundred flowers that are flowering inside the fig. It's all internal. The males and females mate. And then the females bore their way out and fly into another fig. And so the males are still in there. So, um, you know, those wasps that bore out are then flying around looking for another fig. And, yeah, it's something I regularly enjoy observing. It's just the welcome swallows buzzing around the tops of the, the fig trees. And it's invisible because these are only one to two mil size wasps. <laughs> and these, obviously, welcome swallows are quite small, smaller than, you know, your hand span. And, yeah, just watching them eating invisible food. Mm. A lot of people would be interested to know that what you think of as a fig is not actually a pollinated fruit. It's basically like an inside-out mulberry. Absolutely, yeah. And and it's really cool. You can If you stop and have a close look, generally there's a conveyor belt of figs of different ages, and so you'll see the really young ones, and, and so you'll see that there are you can actually see the petiole that the wasp will climb into at the apex of the, of the fig. And then the older ones, you'll see that's actually closed over and you can actually see on the much riper figs just before they've changed colour to be the edible colour, which is generally red, so when they're still a bit orange, if you have a close look, you'll actually see a couple of pinpricks around the side, which is where they've bored their way out. Mm-hmm. And if you crack that open, you generally will see some wasps inside there dead because <laughs> they'll be the, the males that have... Uh, have done their, their life cycle already. They've lived, you know, however for long it is. It might only be a few days or a couple of weeks inside. A, uh, I'd say it's only a few days. I'll have to check with a colleague of mine who does some research on that mutualistic relationship between the figs and the fig wasps. Such a cool, just tiny little world in and of itself. Yeah. Well, I hope our listeners don't get too grossed out next time you're eating a fig because they are delicious, but you are eating dead wasps every time you eat a fig. <laughs> Delicious dead wasps, yes. Delicious, yeah. So we talked a little bit about man-made possum boxes and we also talked about how skilled arborists can create habitat in trees using a chainsaw. What are some of the other ways that our listeners can make their own habitat in their home for any kind of animal or insect? Mm. Yeah, look, the, the first and foremost thing that I always encourage is if you have the capability is to grow those plants. And so for most of us, that means growing some shrubs and grasses. And, and that provides habitat as part of the matrix of the landscape. You know, a lot of us don't necessarily have the space to, to be growing big trees. And, of course, there's a time scale factor there, tree time. Mm-hmm. So the, 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 generally the quickest response is to be looking at growing a, a native habitat garden. The reason why I'm not necessarily pushing bee hotels and, and nest boxes is because they're not always the right solution. And they can actually be a negative. So, you know, if you're putting up a box and you're getting rainbow lorikeets breeding in it, that's not necessarily a great outcome because they're already very common and they actually are competing in other areas for the limited tree hollows with less common species. So 
And things like B hotels, I know they're very popular, but there's some really interesting research from about 10-odd years ago in Canada showing that they were pretty much WASP hotels and that they weren't actually really achieving the outcomes that they were after. Now, of course, that's Canada. It's not Australia. There is some research going on in Australia to investigate these and what's happening here. So this is one of those challenges. We don't always have the, the answers and we don't always have we're not always successful at replicating these natural habitats and processes. We actually often create a whole different <laughs> habitat and, and interactions because it's generally a variety of species that are, are available in these little patches as opposed to in the natural environments of, that haven't been disturbed and altered. So, yeah, I would certainly encourage the, the more the native shrubs. I'll also throw in a, a massive caveat here to avoid the mass flowering things like the grevilleas and corymbias that you'll see a lot of people favoring and so even our beloved bottle brushes no that, <laughs> well look I, I love those flowers on all of them but one of the uh, two of the most common species in many urban areas are rainbow lorikeets and noisy miners and then you can depending where you are you know there's there's going to be a couple of different of those honey eater species and these sugar buffets that we're creating that flower all year round artificially supporting that diversity or sorry that almost monoculture that lack of diversity of native mm. species and if you're familiar with the the native noisy miner they're a, um, a, we describe them as a despotic species that harasses other native species, including not just birds, so mammals and, and other things, excluding them from your backyard. So, you know, this, this whole thing of, oh, where have all the small birds gone? Part of it is loss of habitat. Part of it is competition. So it's, it's a really, you know, if, if you want to replicate the, the native bushland, the native bushland doesn't flower all year round. It's not the, the buffet of nectar. Now, there will be food resources throughout the year, but they'll be from different species as opposed to something like a hybrid grevillea that's just pumping out nectar every day, almost every day of the year. So I hear your pain, Daniel, but <laughs> from an ecological standpoint, there's cause and effect. And so one of the key things with having a native habitat garden is actually that it provides a range of food sources and shelter for native species. And that can include things like having logs on the ground if you've got reptiles or some rock piles, you know, these sorts of features that you naturally see when you go for a bushwalk or go to your, your local patch of, of habitat, wherever that may be. It might be heathland, it might be sand dunes, whatever it is. So, yeah, it's, I, I encourage people to go to those native areas and look at what's there and how it, it, it's actually functioning and then think about what works for them in their space. And I agree it's your backyard. It doesn't have to be strictly the native habitat, but I'm just, as maybe, Daniel, you weren't so big on, on the scenario of the mass flowering um, species <laughs> and how they're, uh, they're supporting different different species and not others so that's that's a pretty common thing that and and i should probably just add i'm not sure if you've spoken about this much before but of course there's the noisy miner which we're talking about here which is a gray bird has a bit of yellow uh, on the face and a yellow beak and then there's the 
common miner, which is a brown bird and also has a yellow beak, but has pretty much a, a dark brown, almost black um, head. Now, that is a, is a species that used to be called the Indian miner, the brown one. And so it's not a native species. And ecologically, it actually nests in tree hollows. So it's competing with native species for tree hollows. So that's where it gets across against its name ecologically. But from a biodiversity perspective, particularly in an urban environment, they are not the species that are harassing and excluding those smaller native birds and, and other animals. Hmm. It's actually the native noisy miner. And there's been some recent research and, and effort to have noisy miners listed as a threatening process to other native species in parts of New South Wales because of the fact that they actually are, have been shown to be decreasing the, the diversity of smaller birds in the area. And to be frank, they don't just harass smaller birds. <laughs> they harass powerful owls, which are, you know, <laughs> the biggest owl in the country. Yeah. They're, um, they're an amazing species. Don't get me wrong. They're, they're simply successful and they're exploiting the landscape that we've created and altered. And I talk to people, like my comment is the urban environment is ultimately the golf course of nature. So it's, it's perfect for noisy miners. There's trees, there's open spaces, there's lots of flowering. That's, you know, pretty much how you make a golf course. Mm. And, and that's what most urban areas are. So you look through that lens and suddenly you'll go, all right, this doesn't really provide great habitat for something like a superb fairy wren, which again is a little 10 gram bird the size of your thumb that hops around on the ground and flits into dense vegetation to escape anything it perceives as a threat. You know, as soon as there isn't that dense vegetation, particularly at ground level, it's now vulnerable <laughs> and they they're a little like an egg <laughs> so their body shape isn't that aerodynamic they don't really fly like a jet plane and you see noisy miners dive bombing them yeah they've got no chance unless they can get to that denser vegetation so that's the other thing about good vegetation just to two final points and they're not always great for your backyard but the first one is when you go to your local native patch of vegetation and check it out, you're probably going to realize it's really spiky or, or you know, at the very least scratchy. Um, the other thing is you generally can't walk through it really easily. You have to pick your way and weave through it. That is when I say to people that's an example of, of good shrubby habitat, you know, whereas, of course, what we predominantly want in our backyards are lawns that we can just stroll on and kick a ball on and lay on. And, and that's perfectly acceptable as well. It's about having the balance. Yeah, and I think knowledge is power too, John. I agree. Is there anything else that you'd like our listeners to know about? Uh, look, I mentioned it through through the, through our chat. So Wildlife Assist is the rebranding of Hollows as Homes, and, and it's actually going to expand on that project. So it'd be great to get people to, to get involved and have a look at the, the wildlifeassist.net website. I mentioned the big city birds. So that's about bird behavior. So people can go and check out that, um, download that app and, and report sightings and, and get on our social media and learn more about it as well on the website. And then lastly, I also had mentioned the urban field naturalists. So again, get involved. Look, there's so many things people can do. The first is to value the, the plants and animals and the ecosystems around them. So things like fresh water, you know, it's really important, fresh water, fresh air. And if you can grow a little habitat garden, that's great. Yeah, so I encourage people to get involved in things like bush regeneration or bush care. 
and also things like citizen science, which is what the, the big city birds and wildlife assist are, they're citizen science projects. But there's a range of things that people can get involved in in citizen science, as simple as iNaturalist, which is a photo-based project, or eBird, reporting the birds you see in your backyard or your uh, local park. So there's, there's something for everyone out there if you're interested in nature. Absolutely. Thank you so much for coming on, John. That was an incredible couple of episodes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I should have warned you, Daniel, that I'm uh, quite the gas bag. Um, so <laughs> hence the long right. talk. But um, anyway, yeah, cool. We'll, we'll be in touch, eh? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You're, well, you're welcome on any time. So. All right, mate. It makes sense, right? Trees make habitat for animals and other organisms. I hope you guys learned a lot and found a lot of value in that episode because I think this is a really important subject for people to know about. Before John and I started talking about trees as habitat, I actually managed to record a previous conversation that just happened spontaneously and I'm going to be releasing that this Sunday, so make sure you keep an eye out for that. Tell your friends and family about the Plants Grow Here podcast, listen to our back catalogue of episodes, And if you have an Apple device, it would mean so much to us if you could leave us a five-star review on iTunes with a nice little comment. Don't forget that throughout February, we're going to be releasing two episodes per week. 